do you have any hope that uh, like Russians and Ukrainians can live in peace in the future? Depends on what time period you look at. I mean, we eventually, yes. Yeah. But I think most people on both sides, especially the Ukrainians, won't be able to imagine that at the moment, I think. So um, yeah. if we look at history, if history can be any guide, um, I think looking at how other European nations or citizens um, interact with Germans, for instance, or if you look at some of the positive signs in the, the Balkans, although there are many negative ones at the moment, well, yeah. um, I think there can be some glimpse of hope or some some optimism. But I think it's a it's a very long road. Of course. Uh, I also think it's a long road, but it's uh, like the horizon that's important to, to keep in mind because I think eventually that should be an end goal or this should be some sort of uh, like a real, almost like not a dream, but something like that people should strive to achieve from international relations perspective. Because of course, of course, now everything, like all the discussions, they kind of go into this direction of who wins the war, which, I mean, of course, if you are very, um, if you support one side, of course, you're going to have one type of one type of answer. If you support another side, you have another type of answer. So it's like a very polarizing question, very polarizing like answer and thinking. But if you think about how do you make a long-term benefit for both sides, for both Ukrainians and Russians, and I mean, for, I also talk in the sense of Russian people and Ukrainian people, you really need to think about how do you make them live together peacefully? Or how do you, how do you ensure that those nations live together in peace? Because I think the problem that we can encounter, and I guess the, 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 some experts definitely raise this problem, that you could have like a very long-term conflict, even if you have some type of peaceful agreement, or some ceasefire, you will have the comeback of over and over and over and over again. Because of course, there are not so many examples in history of this type of conflict. Some people may bring, I don't know, North Korea, South Korea, the way it can eventually be resolved short term. But of course, when I look at European history, to me, the example of, of course, Germany and France is a, is a staggering one because those were the nations that quite fought each other for more than a hundred years. But I mean, of course, I think the analogy of Germany and France is, is difficult for two reasons. First of all, it's, it's a, yes, it is a very long history. At the same time, it is one that luckily ended in 1945 and hasn't you know, erupted again. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think it didn't cost that many lives. So, I mean, um, and especially in the, f if so, in the first world rather than the second. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, but they I'm, I'm not intending to downplay that, um, that many French people killed. But I mean, if you, you look at the second world war, I think the way the war was fought in the East and the way the war was fought in the West still is different or was different. So, I mean, in, in that sense, um, and if you look at back at times of, of, you know, the arch enemy France or vice versa, the arch enemy uh, Germany or Russia or uh, the, the German Reich, I think that was also when you had a lot of standing armies and when 
you know, battles were fought on the battlefield and not that many civilians were harmed. So I think um, war is taking place on a larger scale. Um, we, there are all th kinds of theorists of war who say that the way that wars have been fought has changed um, or changed with the First World War because at that, at that time, you know, it started to become tall. Um, and also one that um, did many more loss of life, um, so a destruction of infrastructure, um, harm to the civilian population, starvation, what have you. So it makes a difference also for reconciliation. And I mean, um, talking about Ukraine and Russia and the time horizon, I think the trends that we're seeing at the moment, of course, are not um, very reassuring because um, what we see is, I think, an even stronger bifurcation or confrontation that takes place where you have um, a North Korean leader coming to Moscow, which of course is a strong signal that there is something like a pivot to it, if you will, or as some called it, a new axis of evil uh, that is, is forming. And I mean, as, as such, um, even if we think of a post-Putin Russia, um, we will have to see how this, this trend towards rather orienting the country towards Asia, towards China, towards Korea, towards other countries, um, so um, sort of detaching it from the West, what kind of impact that will have. And I think that's, that's an open question. So at the moment, we are, we are seeing, besides all the horrible effects of the war as such, we also see many trends that pull Ukraine and Russia in different directions, also geographically. Of course, um, that's, that's a big open question, how that will turn out. And of course, then we have other aspects of theories of, of peace, what you refer to as a ceasefire is, of course, can or could be described as peace. There are all sorts of ideas of a positive peace, of a negative peace. I mean, is it simply the absence of war, a peace, or is that something comprehensive? So, I mean, I think there is a lot of, you know, things unpack and a lot of aspects that politicians on all sides to reflect when they move along and um, try to maybe forge ties, try to forge compromises, if there are the possibilities of forging those compromises. Yes, I think one thing to notice that I still think, despite the fact, despite the current trends in, in like, let's say, Russian foreign policy, and despite current trends, even in, in geopolitics as such, I think it's still, it's, not, it, it's, it's impossible to erase Russia from the European map. And we, what what and means like just just in, in in essence that I don't really envision Russia being absent from like European. I mean, you could say security architecture, you can say European order or something like that. Just because it's very artificial. And even if you again, if we if to bring some recent news that say that now Russian cars are prohibited to enter European Union, and they just really don't allow them to, to travel to European Union. And of course, it causes like problems for people who, you know, maybe are used to traveling back and forth from Russia to Finland, from Kaliningrad, Kaliningrad to, 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 to Russia, crossing Baltic states and stuff like this. But in a sense, what I, what I try to think about a lot is how you can really ensure that, uh, that I mean, Russia and Ukraine have more or less peaceful coexistence. And for me, the thing that comes to my mind is, of course, like the idea of some kind of expanded European Union or some type of, uh, if we talk about maybe security, some type of 
reorganize NATO arrangement. Just because it's hard to imagine that you really can sustain peace without 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 incorporating both Russia and Ukraine into 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 one space, so to speak. I, I would call it just space because again, space that, uh, they can really coexist. And of course, like for me, uh, for me, the example of Germany and France is really important because. Even in, I don't know, in the 30s, it would be hard to imagine that uh, Germany and France would ever live peacefully together. And I think there is still some strain, right, between Germany and France, not in the sense of on the political level, but you could definitely see that culturally those countries are very different. And German people and French people, it doesn't seem that they're very interested in each other, which is noticeable when you... Decreasingly so, if you look at figures like... yeah. The number of pupils who take German or French classes, the number of exchange students, the number of, you know, uh, those jumelages, those are those twinnings between different, you know, cities and the interest. Yeah. That's, that is something where you see um, a decrease. That's, that's, yeah. that's correct. At the same time, of course, there are no, no tensions in the sense that someone in France or in, in Germany of the right-wing parties would say... yeah. We should invade our neighboring country, meaning no, France no, or Germany. Mean, so that's that's a, luckily or that's fortunately a thing of the past. I think, of course, on, on country on on the political level, there is there is a big alignment going on, especially on, on elitist levels. We see all these Franco-German cooperation agreements. We see all these like attempts to bring elites closer together to have those like exchanges. And I think like more or less, if you, if you had, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but if you look at German elites, they, they most of them speak some French and it's kind of like, it's kind of, uh, uh, I believe their work in for maybe European type services, a European type of, they have European type of ambitions. That's, I mean, that's all good, but like still in a sense, the fact that people themselves do not really pay that much attention to their close neighbors. It also shows you there is some history there, right? There is some complicated history because it's it's also because why is that? Like why people who live so close together, who are I mean nominally like kind of best allies in the world, they like people of those countries they tend not to get that much interested in each other. I mean it just it just there is still some history there, so to speak, right? And to me, it's uh, extrapolating this uh, onto like Russia-Ukraine type of uh, conflict. It's good to think long-term perspective in a sense. How how do you really reconcile them, and how do you really how do you really get through this animosity, so to speak, in a, in a in a long term? And of course, there's something that's to my mind is is this idea of some kind of common space because the common space ensures that 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 um, you build some type of trust. What would what do you mean by 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 the space? Is is it something like an economic space? Is it is it trading? Is it is it an yeah, sort um, of academic space? Is there is some some like academic collaboration. Is it is it is it yeah. real a geographical space that you say there is? For instance, the the currently sort of invaded or occupied Ukrainian territory held by Russian forces, and there could be some kind of I don't know referendum or or 
But political state that uh, these areas are neither Ukrainian nor Russian, or I mean, what what kind of space are you thinking about? I mean, space in the, just in the sense uh, the territory that doesn't really have any border, so to speak. So people mm. from from Moscow can go to Kiev, from Kiev can go to I mean, Brussels, whatever. Some 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 space that. Uh, I mean, of course, something like that comes to my mind is is your friendly EU enlargement. Yes, exactly. In a but way, I, in a way, but I think the EU enlargement. I mean, for this to happen, the the EU itself has to be, of course, rearranged, right? In in some that type of way, because it. I mean, you couldn't imagine this type of enlargement right now. But, I mean, again, coming back to the example of of Germany and France. I mean, of course, you have. Uh, if you think about through history, how EU. EU project started is through a coal agreement, right? And why is why is it so important? Well, coal agreement and the and the area of uh, what they call it like Alsace, yeah, like the and they thought for this area for so long, and then eventually, you know, now it's. I mean, when you even go there, I mean, of course, it's old German type territory. You could see it in terms of names. Depends. You could see the, the, oh, you mean uh, you mean Lutheran area used to be. German at some stage, yes. I mean, like, they have old names in German, and it does feel like it's more German than French, but yet it is a French. But, I mean, does it really matter now? Not really, because, you know, you, you live in the same type of economic space. So this is what comes to my mind. I guess this is, I guess, important to think through, because this I don't, I don't see any other long-term solution. Because, of course, you could say, well, we want to bring... I mean, if you, if you if you like scrutinize like the perspective now, and I don't think actually the West has any long term solutions or has any long term strategy. So they also they also do whatever they have at hand, because like if if you, even if you look at their long term strategy, it's like what make Ukraine win, which is a little bit cynical because I mean I guess people in Washington and Brussels understand that it's not happening that they're not getting back Crimea anyway. So eventually they have to compromise something. And in a sense, like unions, like territorial integrity, whatever you call it. So, which means that they have to compromise. And the compromise means that they have to come up with some type of solution where Ukraine is satisfied with the compromise. So... And then the question, does compromise actually lead to a lasting peace? Or is, it exactly. just, or is it just the start to a new round of conflict? So, I mean, yeah. so maybe there are some things that where you can draw on a historic analogy, maybe also to the Versailles Treaty and things like that. At the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. I think one of the, maybe in hindsight, advantages of the, the German-French situation was that they were more or less you know, at the same level in terms of of power, land mass, more or less. So I think the, the asymmetry in terms of the power relations between Ukraine and Russia are way more pronounced. So, I mean, if you look at the population size, if you look at uh, the size of the territory, if you look at all of those aspects, I think um, the the possibility of a peace agreement or of some kind of stability maybe was mm. was easier to achieve the German-French um, relations at the same time that's a very say 
um, yeah, a, a kind of balance of power or equilibrium thing where, where you just look at, at figures. Because of course, there are also other factors. Um, so, I mean, there are relationships like the Canadian-American one. You know, there has been peaceful coexistence, even if this one country is significantly larger than the other and could technically invade the other one without much of a problem. So, I mean, in that sense, there are, of course, other elements to that as well. But I, I think um, it's, yeah, it, it will be complicated. Um, of course, also, it needed the entire, uh, or it needed the, the surrender of Germany and basically the entire occupation of Germany to rebuild it after the Second World War. So, I mean, of course, we all know that's off the table. There will be no way that, you know, tanks will roll into Moscow and that there the regime will be toppled, that there will be a new democratic regime to be established. So, I mean, I think it, it all hinges on uh, in, in what Russia will develop and um, in what way also political developments will more or less move in, in parallel or at least not in opposite directions in Kiev and in, in Moscow. And I mean, that's, that's of course a, a, a big question. Coming back to your aspect of a EU judgment or anything like that, of course, that's, that's a far cry and that's, that's a, a sort of a very long uh, time, time horizon there. So, I mean, um, but really I, the I question, may, maybe we shouldn't think about historical analog analogies that much because maybe they might reduce our creativity or maybe they, they actually make us think in ways that are not only not allowing for certain possibilities, but maybe they, yeah, maybe they're also detrimental to our creativity of, of finding a solution. I mean, and... Um, I mean, if, if you look at what apparently some psychologists and researchers in, in trauma and, and, and those aspects um, found out is that, of course, the, the physical and psychological scars of, of warfare that is fought at such a scale has a massive impact on the population. So um, if, if one draws apparently the evidence from, from the Balkan Wars, you see that especially the the population that lived through the, the wars, I mean, doesn't believe those kind of, you know, period again. So, I mean, you really have to invest a lot into propaganda in order to continue fighting those wars. And you also have to look at, at the youth, something like school curricula that eventually prevent that countries are going to war again. And I mean, there I'm very skeptical because I mean, everything that I here from Russia is not very reassuring because, I mean, what they're basically doing, seem to do, is, is uh, trying to force young kids to, you know, believe in the grandeur and, the, you know, the, the, the importance of, of Russia um, fighting for it militarily and also getting indicted that, I mean, a lot of countries are um, trying to conquer the country or something like that. Yeah, but it's also easily reversible because for Russia, it's a little bit of a distant war. For Russians, it's a distant war. I mean, they don't really recognize it as a total national conflict. I mean, because the whole concept with the, I mean, it's still called actually special military operation is to show the distance from people, so to speak. So there is some, and I guess it's like one thing that is really important in the future. And I guess for people like me, for people, experts who live abroad for Russians who live abroad is to really argue 
that is no connection or to disconnect, so to speak, Russian people from Russian government in the sense that it's conducive uh, for meaningful peace in the future. And the same, I mean, the same, I mean, like in, 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 Germans, in German case, of course, the, the, the answer was clear that there was a Hitler regime and there were German people and the connection was made to, like the idea to punish only like you know people who belong to Hitler regime uh, in the Nuremberg process. I mean, it was, of course, productive for future peaceful development, so to speak. Uh, and now, of course, Germany has a complicated history, but at least, you know, even among European nations, people don't look at Germans as some weird people who are different from other European nations. But, like, there, there are a bunch of arguments floating around that, you know, Russians are very, like, special type people, and maybe they, it's forever with them. And stuff like this. So of course, it's also it's also the result of work to be done on this front to really argue that uh, you know Russia Russian culture has nothing to do with Putin. Russian Russian people really it's it's all about mainly propaganda and stuff like this. And as such, it's really I think it's really reversible in the sense for Russia it's a distant war. Of course, the question for on Ukraine is much more complicated because for Iran it is I'm I mean I assume is a total war. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's about a, a state of it's a war about the survival of the state. Of course, yeah. it's it's some it's a war that basically affects everyone. I mean, if you if you see yeah, that, yeah. I mean, uh, so. even if you live close to the Romanian border or if you live close to the Russian, uh, to, sorry, to the Polish border, yeah. that it's, I mean, your house can be hit pockets. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's yeah. of course there is something that's happening immediately at the front line, where also people are evacuated, where they flee their homes. Um, but I mean, if as such, of course, there are also some minor attacks on Russia. But I mean, I think the scale is just very different. No, no, it's so. still in the Russian case, it's still very distant conflict, uh, which is, I mean, of course, in a sense, surprising. But this is also the way Russian government manipulates society. It's just you know, like all duplicity is, of course, intentional. It is intentionally a national conflict and distant conflict at the same time. So, Russian government can use it. I can basically leverage it in its own purposes, uh, masterfully, of course. But yeah, like with the Ukrainian, like in 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 the Ukrainian case, it's way much more obvious that, of course, the trauma is there, and uh, for people, um, it would be way much harder to forgive, and Russian people, like uh, Russian people, because for them, like they don't really disconnect again Russian regime from Russian people. But actually, it's important then maybe to bring this, what I already said in a sense of to, to disconnect regime from, from Russian people, because it's actually the, the, the argument that Russian people are equal to the Russian regime. It's very prominent in Ukraine. I mean, understandably so. But then again, it's it's then important to argue back because, uh, like for me, again, this is like such an obvious thing that there is really no connection between government and Russian people, even though you know statistics. Uh, only to a certain extent, of course. I mean, yeah. But, but I mean, if, if, I mean you, if you if you mean you mustn't one mustn't equate the Russian people with the Russian regime. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm off, I mean. Yes, some are indoctrinated. The question is, is there some kind of self-reflection? I mean, the, the fact that many people left the country, I think, also shows that 
the propaganda is not working for everyone or that yeah. some see through that or also yeah. also notice it and of course it comes with a lot of hardships to leave the country i mean economic wise or or um, in 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 other respects so um of yeah. course of course this this idea that some people say why are people you know flooding red square houses in in moscow and bring the regime and then you know you have a democratic russia i think that's also in a way unfortunately wishful thinking and a bit naive but i mean um, because there are many ways that the russian government can crack down can put people into prison and of course that um, makes it difficult for people to to revolt or go um on the streets and i mean that's maybe there is an analogy there to the the third right right so i mean that in the hinds people said you know they uh, people were afraid to say something and i mean then there is a certain stage when it's too late so i mean it would have been a way when people might have stood up and said enough is enough but in that sense it's a it's a slippery slope and things are getting worse by the day and i mean i, th I think that's something we we do see and that's um, of course terrible And then I guess that's the question of responsibility, because and then coming back to this idea of uh, like the difference between the Reich and Russia, we assume you know Russia won't be conquered, but you know I I mean actually I think I that's why I, I actually I would argue that there is a necessity to disconnect this idea of peace from like developments in Russia. I would say mainly because. Um, I mean, of course, you don't know how, like, oh, what type of developments you have in Russia. But if you have a certain understanding of how you can build a peace, in other words, how you can, like, really try to, try to, to, to have some peaceful arrangement where, you know, Ukraine and Russia can exist peacefully without future wars. You need, you need to think, you need to think beyond this idea of what type of regime you have in Russia, because you, you could have, you could have something. Uh, like technocratic regime in Russia that comes to power and you know it talks to like you know uh, people in Brussels and you need to have like, people in Brussels should have some idea how what what can we offer to them because I I mean I can imagine a scenario where they you know send to jail I mean let's say it's new technocratic regime and let's say it's even autocratic I mean some it's not like that in history when when the West uh, cooperates with autocratic regimes, but they they can send to jail, let's say, all people. It's like Putin died, something like this. That's, that's some wishful scenario, but still. <laughs> and they send to jail everyone who, like, maybe participated in the Putin regime, or except for, maybe, you know, the way they did with Third Reich, people who like, did like, finance and stuff like this. And, and if, you, if you have some type of idea to pitch to a new Russian government where, you know, they solve the problem in this, uh, they solve the problem. So they, they kind of like shoulder the role that they can take. Maybe they, maybe they can take this, so to speak, maybe they can take this scenario and work with it and work with it. But if you have any type of scenario, then of course you have a problem because then you don't really think, I mean, politically, in long-term perspective. I mean, this is what I want to argue, but I guess it's also important uh, just to bring this just to the discussion, so to speak. I understand that it's not a, an issue that can be solved anytime soon, but at least if you if you if you just you know have a seed in in someone that this is important to think through, 
maybe that can lead in the future in the 23rd or something. Well, I think, I think it's there with some exiled Russians. And then the question is, if you look at the recent history or conflicts that ended, there was never or rarely the case that you had someone who was exiled, who sort of returned and then... Maybe some could say he was exiled, but he was sent into prison like Nelson Mandela and then, you know, taking, I mean, becoming um, the president of South Africa and then, you know, starting a sort of new page or new chapter in, in South African history. But of course, that that was not really a question of, of warfare. And it's it's in that sense, it's it's not a... A good historic analogy, but I mean, if you look, for instance, at anything that has happened in Syria and anything that has happened in Iraq, in anything that has happened in Afghanistan, I mean, you couldn't something like an exile or government in exile that even took over and then everything, you know, became better. So, I mean, it's, it, I mean, even, even, if the countries even, are stable at all, or if there's some kind of peace, I mean, it was because of some other kind of, you know, arrangements or yeah. power. I mean, even arrangements. In the Russian case, I think it's obvious that there is some a pendulum swing. I mean, uh, I mean, after Putin, you can with some certainty that there's going to be democratization in Russia. What is democratization that is? Because you mean the situation is so bad that it cannot get worse. No, I mean just just looking through, just again having a historical lens here. Like for example, after Stalin, you had democratization with Khrushchev. After Brezhnev, you had Gorbachev. Even after Yeltsin, first time of Putin, I mean, okay, first Putin was, I mean, it wasn't democratic, but you still see this pattern that after like a strong leader, there is a pushback. And I mean, it's it's also maybe, I mean, the way that I can I can argue that, like why American system is so good, because it allows this pendulum swing to, to work institutionally, right? You have left and right, so to speak, and then they kind of like change change their... Uh, they change, change, change their spots and then they take responsibility and then, you know, they kind of rule the country. So if you can have the same type of system, maybe it would be just, just beneficial for Russians to have this type of system where you can have, you know, more or less autocratic change, or like more or less autocratic regime followed by some, not regime, but some type of like party followed by more or less democratic one. So because even if Putin, like, for example, I mean, one thing is certain that after Putin, you will have type of regime but more democratic leader and in a sense like you will have like a pushback even from elites because I mean, again Putin is, is an extreme type of scenario and of course now with all his deeds so to speak you could definitely see that he moved like way much closer to like full-blown dictatorship <laughs> it's hard to imagine that like after him they're going to be a person who is even more ruthless but it's also who has actually that much authority because Putin, like the way he didn't really have that much of authority when he became the president, but he collected it step by step. And he also, I mean, has some type of legitimacy in a sense because Russian people like trust him. But again, I wouldn't really blame Russian people, but he, he is the master of basically mass manipulation. He knows how to manipulate people. He knows what to sell to them and how to tap to this Russian psyche and the side of people who, you know, were raised in Soviet Union with this idea that they're unique, that, you know, they're like the only ones who can fight capitalism, the U.S., blah, blah. 
he did. He hijacked this limbic system. I don't know, hijacked like their whole mentality, and now you have. But yourself. I mean, if we if we try to unpack that, I mean, we, maybe we we come back to two points that you made. Yeah. So one was we talked a lot about the French German history, recent to yeah. last two centuries, and tried to use that as an analogy, so that it didn't really get us that far. You also mentioned the Koreas as an example. Of course, that might be an 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 other interesting thing because I mean everything you said. I mean, being optimistic that the next leader of Russia after Putin will most likely in the end, yeah. <laughs> uh, not be as terrible, which I mean doesn't mean a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, might give us a little hope, but of course, uh, first of all, then say um, it's up, of course, to the Iranians then to decide. Well, even if there is some kind of you know, offer on the table or if you have, you know, sort of an open hand or whatever you call it, that, I mean, there is, um, say, a Russian initiative or um, Russian efforts to, you know, reassure or to do confidence-building measures with Ukrainians. There is, of course, the question whether, I mean, you will buy into that, will actually cooperate or, or you know, take up that offer. So, I mean, that's, that's a first question. And so, I mean, if our focus is here on on peace, on stability, or end of conflict. I think there are indeed two scenarios. One is, <clears throat> technically, there would be a Korea-style, Korean-style arrangement. Um, but that would basically mean there the ties between the countries are severed. And I mean, um, if there is some kind of ceasefire, there will be also something like a demilitarized zone, and otherwise the Ukrainians and Russia will most likely not increase, but rather decrease or basically come to a standstill. Now, I think uh, this analogy doesn't bring us that far, is that European history is different, so I, I, I agree with that, and Russia has always played a very complicated part in that European history, the same goes for Germany. Um, and at the same time, I think the picture is more complex because it involves more more players or more countries. So I think um, if we now look at what is happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is somewhere down to the south, where we where we see that basically the Azeri government is is starving Armenians. If we look as happening also in terms of nuclear um, arms that are being shipped to Belarus, we see that it is not about Ukraine now. Russia versus NATO countries or the West, because I mean, as such, it is it is more complex. Because we, I mean, we also have to bring Belarus into the equation. So I think I think in that in that sense, it is we have Kaliningrad, um, we have a, a very very delicate, also geographical situation that makes it more difficult to actually achieve something like like a DMZ in. In the Koreas, because I mean, here it's 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 a sort of clear-cut borderline. Yeah. That it is more or less stable. Of course, what we see is the North Korean regime, like, is completely disconnected from anything that happens in Korea and Korea. And if there are ties, they are exist with regard to Beijing and China, but it's more or less a completely isolated regime. And um, as such, uh, I we won't see that for Russia because I mean, it's also. It's more powerful uh, and I in think terms of the economy. Doesn't I mean? The question is, what will it look like? Is it what? What sort of? It, it will most likely be between the two poles and extremes. So I mean, be German, Germany, France. It also won't be like the Korea. So the question is, how will but that look like, and how will it look like in ten years, in twenty years, in thirty years, in forty years? 
Yeah, I guess like two comments. Like the, the first one is actually if you think about DMZ, I don't think Ukrainians would subscribe to that either because like DMZ means that they know, let's, let's say, they settle now with borders they have now. And it basically means Ukraine will never get back those territories, right? I mean, factually, because DMZ means it's a frozen conflict for 40 years or whatever. So I don't think Ukrainians will subscribe to this either. So it's not like beneficial for Ukrainians because they, they're going to lose 25% of their territory. I mean, I don't think it's the best type of scenario even for, for them. And of course, what you said, the second point is this idea that this is more or less uh, European security conflict. Or you can say it has like European security conflict dynamic. It's, it's, it's more than just conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's conflict between Russia and the West. Or you can say it's conflict between Russia and NATO countries. Or it, I mean, you can say, well, but it, it has like this um, dynamic that uh, is just bigger than the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And that's why the solution to it would also require some type of rethinking of European security architecture or rethinking of, uh, you know, how those nations live together, so to speak. It's the same way to say rethinking European order. Of course, this is something that the West is really against because for them it's, it means, because for in, in, in their worldview, like the, the water that exists now, it, it is beneficial for them. So there is like to change it, they don't really want it. You're not talking about the Russians. It's no, I mean the West itself. So because from, from there, I mean, what I can see, of course, they, their dynamic and how they think about it is like just Russia is not part of the Western order and that's it. Or it's like something that is actually as an enemy to the Western order. So they exclude Russia and you know, they want to make this uh, to, make, to, to make this conclusion that, okay, Russia is not part of the West, Russia is not part, because for the West and, and Europe, it's kind of the same thing. So they want to make this conclusion that Russia is not part of the West. If anything, Russia is an enemy to the order. So, you know, if Russia wants to go Asia, go Asia, but just like leave us alone. And, you know. Well, I mean, that's also something <laughs> that you, you, you hear from Moscow. I mean, so, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think in, in that, I'm not sure whether it's, it's, not only it's not also an assessment of you know decision makers in Brussels, be it in you know NATO headquarters or or in the EU, um, who just are careful observers of what is happening in Russia. And I mean, um, of course, there is more of a reorientation towards Asia, um, all the rapprochement towards uh, China. And I mean, maybe we haven't discussed the sort of real elephant in the room because we are geographically too limited when we look just Europe itself. Because I mean, I think what this this um this war also represents is and what is repeatedly being said by by putin mm -hmm. and also by xi and others is that uh we're seeing something like the decline of the american unipolar moment we see this new multipolar order and um, if if that is also what the ukrainian war is about um multipolarity a new multipolarity i mean um of course decision makers in Washington and, and Brussels or Europe will think about what role they play in that multipolar order and uh, what the rules of the game will be for such a multipolar order. Because, I mean, there is all... I mean, if we look at the way that the G20 summit played out, if we look at the way that G7 tries to counter the Belt and Road Initiative, if we look at the BRICS summit 
And then also the idea of enlarging the BRICS. I mean, do see, of course, quite obviously that things are not necessarily falling apart, but I mean that there are new dynamics at play and there are new kind of alliances that are, you know, taking shape. So, I mean, there are, there, there are those actors or countries such as Brazil and India that or Turkey, I think they they sort of cooperate or, you know, play this this kind of game, if you want to refer as a game, yeah. and in, in a way that they uh, align very flexibly or very pragmatically with, with people, depending on whether it's sort of in their military, in their geopolitical, economic, whatever interests. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, at times they can confront Russia, at times they can... And accommodate Russian concerns or even cooperate with Russia. Um, so I, I think in that sense, we, yeah, we are currently in um, a situation where also the, everything that is, has been referred to as, as the new multipolar order or multipolarity, I mean, also plays out in, in Europe. So, I mean, if, if we just look at it in isolation, I think we might overlook something or we might actually not take into consideration some of the dynamics that are at play. Um, yes. And but maybe you're not convinced. No, I mean, in a sense, there is this, of course, there is like this uh, grand geopolitical layer to the con itself uh, or to, to the spat between like the West and Russia. I mean, obviously. Uh, and also, of course, the West, I mean, in, in, they don't recognize it in the, in the official rhetoric, but it seems... You know, the West tries to protect international order while anyone, like almost everyone except for the West, lies with Russia, but at least they, they don't really care about international order that the West represents anymore. So they kind of like they're okay with whatever type of order, like Russia and China trying to like multipolar order, trying to create. And yeah, I think this dynamic is, is certainly important. But what I try to think a lot, again, I, I, but it's also yeah. It's 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 very interesting to bring this into perspective or into thinking. But what I try to think about is still is still this idea of, but how can you, but how can you make, <laughs> how can you make some peace like you know in a sense, or how can you really uh, ensure that they live like peacefully together, or how you can like any progress uh, on this front. Because it seems like for now, of course, it seems, you know, almost impossible to have a type of peace agreement. But I don't really I don't really think it, it can last forever, forever, like for 30, 40 years. But then of course for me so it's it's also the question of the dynamic is seems so unnatural because I guess this geopolitical game that really divides European continent which means for me personally, right, from a very type of human type of perspective, like the idea that Russian people cannot travel to Europe is obnoxious. I mean, it's really unnatural because the flow of, like, you know, capital, the flow of um, resources, the flow of human capital, including human capital, is supposed to be, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of open. And I guess naturally it tends to, to like move into the direction of this openness because you have like exchange of ideas, you have exchange of uh, people, you have exchange of blah, blah, blah. 
And this is very unnatural the way it develops now. So the, the way that, you know, we close like Europe from Russians, but at the same time, we want to open to Indians and I mean, South, South, uh, South Americans. Yes. I mean, of course, like I could see this as a like short term strategy, but I don't think it, it's, it's sustainable for 30 years. Again, what we discussed... It's something that happens during war times. I mean, you, had, you have all those figures, for instance, that mm. the level of connectedness, the, le the level of sort of globalization that was in place or was achieved um, shortly before the First World War, and then was sort of, you know, cut off or erupted because of the First World War and, and was only achieved again in the 2000s. I mean, it's something that mm. um, happens in war times. Borders are closed. The change of population is reduced, of course, when uh, Germans fought in the First and Second World War. I mean, exactly that exactly. happened. And I mean, the question then is, is is war something is, is unsure? We'd say, I mean, it's something that shouldn't happen because, I mean, just the, the, the kind of results are just so horrific that, I mean, we should try our best to ensure that wars are not occurring or if there are, you know, other ways of conflict resolution that they should yeah. implement it. But, I mean... Um, As the, the reaction, I th I, to me, I think sound pretty reasonable, even with a country that the Europeans are not at war with um, and have been holding orcs for decades now, like Turkey. We have more or less a similar um, yeah. re regime in terms regime in terms of you know, yeah. uh, not migration, but I mean visa regime. I mean of of you know um, having hurdles to to enter the country, and of course it's it's um, very asymmetric because i mean if i want to travel to turkey i can basically enter the country and get my visa upon arrival that's different for turkish people coming to germany so i mean if we say that these should be sort of more streamlined identical or more um less metric yes i mean that's something we can discuss but i mean at the same time i also see that um yeah, it is it is difficult to have this i mean if you cut off officially at least, um, economic ties with Russia, that you have a decrease in trade, you have a decrease in imports and exports. Um, it's also, I think, not surprised to see that also the the exchange of of yeah. people also yeah, but is the, the, reduced. The question is whether it's... Uh, oh, I mean, the, the, I guess the better way to frame it, whether it's something that in the West you eventually want, you eventually want to really have this type of like world order where you have uh, this uh, you know this uh, strong differentiation between the west vis-a-vis -vis the rest because what actually synthesizing maybe what we points we discussed of course the idea that uh, russia is not really isolated it's important to to bear in mind in the sense it also shows like you know um it's shows... only isolated from You're only isolated the, from west. the west Exactly, which also shows the constraints of the Western power itself, because it's not really possible to isolate country like Russia. Right? It's of course they managed to isolate, let's say, Iran or North Korea, but with Russia, it's sorry, it's it's too big, and it's or it's also also you can say like globalization made things impossible. Like um, globalization made this type of arrangement, it's impossible to 
isolate Russia, right? Because it's already too well connected to other countries. It's it's very well connected to China. It's very well connected to India. It's very well connected even to South America or to Africa. So, I mean, of course, like you can inflict pain, but then is this something that you want long term? Because for me, what 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 I said before, and what I I, I think I argue that it's like the West actually doesn't have long term strategy. Like all of their actions, they're like just short term reaction type of. Uh, but how can you how can you know that there is no long term? Strategy. Because I, my, I, my I guess is, see. I mean, you will in Brussels, you will find people at least who have something, oh, you know, on their hard disks or otherwise on their shelves where they have a sort of short-term, medium, and long-term strategy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that there is a long-term strategy or at least idea, concept to sort of include Russia in whatever kind of arrangement, future arrangement. But of course, that's very, very down along. Uh, down the line so i mean um it, the the, the short-term thing is or as, as such as you we we need to imagine that there are two sides um that also need to signal that they are interested in a rapprochement if there is something like a fire at the end so i mean um and um i also see that Structurally speaking, the likelihood that there will be some like um, more of a of an initiative by Europeans rather than the Ukrainians is something that is also pretty understandable because I mean, first of all, there is a more institutional logic to the one that is playing out in Brussels, and at the same time, of course, um, while Europe or the West is supporting Ukraine, are not technically. Um, a conflict party on the battlefield. Um, so um, as such, I think it for the Ukrainian, it's at this stage way more difficult to imagine for most Ukrainians, I guess, so for almost all Ukrainians to imagine something like a, you know, future types of operation, collaboration, peaceful coexistence with, with Russians. So, I mean, but I mean, it will, it, it will have to involve the two sides. I mean, there will have to be signs by, by Russia and there will have to be signs by 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 brussels and i mean of course the the question is is in a way something very human so i mean who sort of takes the first step i mean or what is what the, the kind of yeah how can how can one side actually um yeah receive signs or or interpret signs that there is is some kind of you know new page that can be opened okay so we are we are back <laughs> And um, yeah, what I what I thought, and the way I want to respond is uh, there is one thing you have, of course, uh, a lot of parties involved in the conflict. But what I mean by saying that the West doesn't have a long term strategy, I quite literally mean it because if they had long term strategy, they would really think about some type of reconciliation or some type of peaceful arrangement. But they actually don't think about it at all. So the less, how can they ensure their victory? Ensure that their principles, um, their principles and their way of thinking prevails, so to speak, rather than thinking about okay, we have to reconcile both parties, or we have to kind of create an arrangement that is both that is both uh, suitable for Russia and suitable for Ukraine, and then they would have completely different thinking 
and that's why we think that they uh, they don't have a strategy, long term strategy. I mean, I mean, long term, like twenty, thirty years down the road, and the way they they try to, of course, they try to think something now is mainly through how can they ensure that um, their like, again principles win, and by th- by this I actually mean how can they ensure that Ukraine joins NATO, and this is what brings. That's why it brings so 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 not, not many complications, but it. I guess there is some unseen in the West, so to speak, and no one thinks about again. I've never I've never heard people talking about reconciliation as end goal to the conflict. For example, I have never seen this perspective. Yes, because we have this kind of breaking news logic or social media logic where you know we we don't have profound analysis where we have these kind of short snippets or sound bites of what people say and you have also a repetition or almost mantra like things such as ukraine must win the war uh, russia mustn't win the war and if you really dig deep most politicians won't actually give you a very profound answer because, I mean, also they cannot know. So, I mean, um, I think in terms of underlining that principle is that of territorial integrity, of territorial sovereignty, that um, we cannot in the 21st century um, award a country or letting a country get away with conquering its neighbor and then simply amassing more, you know, population, landmass, whatever. Um, I mean, that's, that's as such, I think, a perfectly reasonable principle. The question is just, um, how does that translate into political action, political reaction? And I mean, what kind of time markers are related to that? So, I mean, if we think about ceasefire, what is it that we then put in place? And I think um, for most, inst- I mean, meaning NATO, Brussels, Washington, um, the OECD world, what have you, um, it is about the question um, whether one can actually negotiate or deal or you know cooperate with the Russia under Putin or not. And I think most would say no. And the question is, what kind of character, what kind of um, regime will actually govern Russia after Putin? So, I mean, I, of course, yeah. if, if you ask most politicians what their, or policymakers, what their wish is, I think certainly most would say um, yeah. nothing Putin in power. Yes, But, but at think... the same time, nobody says we we are actively encouraging or pursuing regime regime change i think but so then that brings us into a delicate situation yeah but then again if you think about it is a is a broader european security problem it doesn't really matter whether putin is in power or he's not i mean of course it does to a certain extent but the problem is still there because it's not, he, he couldn't really boil down to just putin or just like what they like to say his imperial ambitions there is something more to this conflict, so to speak, and that's just the arrangement of European security architecture. And then I see this um, like disconnect between the West and uh, its, uh, let's say, 
illusion that the West is still like the top dog in the system and the reality on the ground. And that, well, I mean, they couldn't really ensure territorial integrity of Ukraine. I mean, by this, by, by, by this time, it's pretty clear. They couldn't really get Russians out of Crimea or probably even Donbass for that matter. So they have to come up with a certain thinking that is really transcends their, their thinking of now in order to kind of also re- reinvent what or like reinvent their own power so to speak because if they if they continue sticking to this uh, delusional thinking that of course Ukraine must win and we have to ensure our own victory here then they they lose even more because again what we discussed in multipolarity terms whatever Russia is doing together with China and together with the rest of the world seems that the the rest of the world is moving somewhere but the west is not you know what i mean so it's not really up to date with the change and um i mean and eventually it will come I, mean, I think it will come the terms of the game or it will come with the with the realities or like the balance of power so to speak but if they if people in the west don't think through this perspective then it will i mean it will just maybe be detrimental to their long-term goals, ambitions, whatever. So this is why I think it's important. And and then, of course, the question of, if you really think long-term perspective, like what the West wants for Russia, like what the place of Russia envisioned by the West. I mean, even if you, if you can have the perfect type of scenario, and this is what I also mean by the fact that they don't really have long-term strategy, if they can have like the perfect type of world, what the world it would be now, like, and what is the place of Russia in this world? So is it that they want Russia to be just like its own thing? And again, like if you, if you read, if you read through documents, it seems like they want to exclude Russia from Europe as such. Like, and you could definitely see it through like NATO expansion thesis, like open door policy, because in documents, they say that they want to have like Europe free at peace, but it really means that they exclude Russia in a sense, like the Europe ends where the Russia starts, something like this. Or do they want to have, uh, okay, like, yeah, what exactly do they want? What, what is the ideal type of scenario for Russia in this Western type of system? Because I think this is like where the problem starts, so to speak. So for me, it's like, it's actually where all this European security architecture kind of crumbles, or it, at least it has some, some, they need to think through it. Well, that's what I, I would argue. And then it comes back to the question of how could you ensure that, okay, both Russia and Ukraine are satisfied? Because that's that's the only way to reconciliation and um, some sort of long-term peaceful, some long-term peace or peaceful coexistence, the way I, I call it. <laughs> but I mean, this will be still a long way to go, especially if you think about it in institutional terms. If it's, it's yeah. if you talk about a security architecture, that is something that is backed up by institutions. If you think about, we just have clear borders and we have also mutually agreed sort of resolution of territorial claims and things like that. Um, I think that would already be that. Um, I also don't see that at the moment. So um, I, 
I guess what is what is missing is some kind of blueprint for these are the kind of red lines or guardrails or criteria under which the West is able to or able to imagine, able to implement some kind of rapprochement towards Russia and or some kind of future European security architecture. At the moment, NATO um, and you primarily see European territorial territorial integrity and especially that of Ukraine, of course, um, threatened by Russia, I think, for obvious reasons. And therefore, there you have this this logic that any kind of gesture of goodwill actually um, should be, would be, could be read as weakness by by the Kremlin. And therefore, I think you, it's, it's also a bit fuffed or, um, yeah, unrealistic to think that there is such a blueprint that already being discussed. So again, I come back to that point where I think, I guess there are <clears throat> at least scenarios that are somewhere hidden behind closed doors that exist for such a long-term strategy, but it's certainly too early to come up with such a long-term strategy that you have someone testing the waters and maybe a retired politician saying, well, um, in order to really have a European continent, we somehow have to find a new way to deal with Russia. I think that's something people might say at some stage, but I mean, in what kind of political action activities that is is then being translated? I mean, that's the big question. And um, I think that is something where, again, we see rather massive pull to the extremes or we actually see have a situation where this is becoming less on mm. both sides. I mean, again, if you have Kim coming to Moscow, I mean, it's... Okay. It's also symbolized. He, he came not to Moscow, but to, to Vladivostok. Okay, yeah. well, okay, but I mean, he, he met Putin. Yeah, uh, in Russia, he came um, to Russia. Um, so yes, I, apparently he loves to uh, travel by train, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it would be yeah, a long the, way. The, the way was of course shorter. But yeah. I mean, I think that of course is something that um, uh, Russia or Putin or the Kremlin. Um, likes to send a certain message. And I mean, both sides send messages and they are actually making it less likely that there will be some kind of um, European security architecture in the near future. So, I mean, the question is, how could that come about? And I mean, that's maybe a question for um, for the next podcast. Yes. How, how are security architectures actually, how are they maintained? <laughs> um, are well, there changes to uh, a security architecture? Because I mean, as such, we do have blueprints, right? I mean, we could go back to yeah, yeah. the OSCE nineteen We have this idea. Germany. I mean, there are so many instances where we had this idea of something ranging from Lisbon to Vladivostok. That's a, a an well, often can, used term. Again, go back to the end of the Second World War and idea. Well, I guess like the the, the European world was based on a certain type of ideas that, you know, you forgive Germans for what they did. You disconnect German Nazi regime from German people and you give German people a chance to... And I mean, you, you quite literally give them opportunity to, to grow, to enrich themselves economically. And all, all of the type of thinking, you know, led to a type of 
peaceful environment that you have now. And what, of course, I argue. And then, of course, if you, I'm pretty sure if you go back in time, there were a whole bunch of ideas there. And of course, ideas to repeat the same type of Versailles type of agreement where you put down Germany even more, let's say, right? Because, I mean, they also could ensure that because they, they won. And that's the same type of... I also think, just I guess the important point to make, that it will be, again, probably the clash of ideas. It's not like, it's not like you can say one type of ideas are better than, than another, but you know, you have to kind of like prove yourself and you have to argue, you have to have a good argumentation why this thinking is better than that thinking. Because however this war ends, or however like the peace settles, you will have different type of ideas. And like, you know, one camp would definitely argue that you have to exclude Russia even more. And if you can, you you have to like put it really down and you have to really go into this Versailles type of thinking. Oh, and there are going to be some people who, who say, let's let's do the type of things with Germany, let's you know integrate Russia, let's give Russian people opportunity to engage economically, and let's uh, create some type of space that includes Russia and Ukraine so they won't have fighting in the future for those type of lands, whatever way. When, if, if, you know, if Russian and, Russian and Ukrainians could travel freely to each other lands, capitals, and, you know, the question of Crimea... Not something that they want to do at the moment, I guess. No, 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 not at all. But, I mean, this is the same type of, you know, questions that Germans and French had when they fought, like, you know, zealously for, like, those... Um, coal enriched uh, region so to speak for them it was also like the question of like death you know who controls those you know, coal enriched uh, Elsass and Lotharingia territories so to speak and now I mean no one really cares and I go the whole European cooperation started the idea that you need to you need to have something like this so you won't come back to this rivalry in the future so I guess that's 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 up for debate, right? And up for I guess up for us to to kind of like make some contribution. But this is why I just I think it's it's way much more important to think about reconciliation than to think about just how to end the war, because reconciliation actually means that you you have like one hundred fifty million people and like with together with like I say if you include Russia and Ukraine, 100 million people living in peace, which, you know, contributes to better life conditions in the world and stuff like this, which is, I mean, obvious thing. It's important to even just force you to think through this lens rather than to think, okay, who wins? Because then you're playing, you're playing this geopolitical game. You don't think about real implement, so to speak. So I guess that's... Uh, they want to include civil society. I mean, that will yes, have to yes. be a process that is at the level of wider society, not only at an elite level. Yeah. The question is, must it driven? Should it be elite driven at this moment? With the current elites, at least in Russia, it's unimaginable. But you and, also and and the question is how how of course if you easier to travel, if you make it easier for people to meet, and that is eventually something that should contribute to yeah. an improvement of the situation. I think that will need a podcast in oh, yeah. more than a many, decade, I'm afraid. Sure, many more podcasts. But also it's 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 good to 
just to try to develop even those ideas because again I don't think people think about it enough or they think about reconciliation at all at this stage because I guess still very early in the war period <laughs> so hope to talk to you in the future about this and uh, I guess let's keep uh, let's keep it uh, let's keep it in our I don't know mental closet <laughs> An agenda for truth and reconciliation commission. Interesting idea. Yeah. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you, Dimitri. Thank you, David.